So, hello and welcome to Right Wing Dharma Squads, Episode 4. I am Dharmakirti, joined with some friends of mine. That's me, I'm Aura. Storm here. And I'm Kagyu. And today we're talking about emptiness, which is one of the most important, maybe the single most important concept, certainly for Mahayana Buddhism. And one of the things I wanted to ask about Aura was uh, how how the Theravada tradition understands emptiness, at least on your uh, version of events. Actually, why don't we start with that? Just, I mean, as a, by way of curiosity, before we even say like what we're even talking about, and I don't know how many people care or listen, but we'll get there in a second. I'm just curious, is, is emptiness something that exists in your tradition or, or how do you yeah, definitely. Uh, it's a huge, it's a huge topic. I think there is a uh, different emphasis in the Theravada, but it's, yeah, just like in your, your guys' schools, it's, it's a super important topic. So the, okay, so that's great. So then we'll have something to, to bounce off of with that. Uh, the, so when, for people who don't know, which I think I, I envision this, I imagine it as being at least in part kind of, um, uh, you know, edifying for people or teaching them something that maybe they don't haven't heard before. Uh, emptiness is typically understood as what's called the lack of uh, inherent nature or self nature. It's a translation of the Sanskrit term swabhava, which, like swa, is uh, cognate with the English word self. Uh, it's like an Indo European root. And then bhava is from the root bu, which basically just means to exist. So, like, self existence is another way you could translate the term. Um, obviously it's sort of, there's a lot going on there and we can get into that later, but the, but the essence of the idea is it comes from the, what's called the perfection of wisdom or the Prajnaparamita literature, uh, which are the, I guess you could say kind of the earliest Mahayana scriptures or the definitive, like what, as, so I guess you, maybe even back up a bit further. So as we had this, we had like the early Buddhist tradition and then starting around approximately somewhere in the neighborhood of 500 years after the Buddha, so somewhere around, right, probably around the time of the birth of Christ, maybe like a little after, um, you started seeing these uh, scriptures, these sutras that were calling themselves Mahayana and referring to this thing called the Mahayana or the great vehicle. And there's a lot that you know goes into that. We've talked about a little before, but one of the main things actually was this teaching on emptiness. That was really definitive for a lot of them. And they were saying, you know, um, ear is empty of ear, eye is empty of eye, mind is empty of mind. Uh, you know, everything is empty of itself. And and this was the this was like the core thing about uh, the perfection of wisdom scriptures and the core thing one of the core things about the Mahayana uh, and then it was really put into kind of definitive form um, actually in the, by this uh, scholar Saint Nagarjuna who's actually also credited with having brought some of the perfection of wisdom literature to the human realm it said he's called Nagarjuna which means like the master of the Nagas or the Nagas are like these snake creatures um, because he the, the Nagas had the perfection of wisdom literature in their realm like kind of typically it's understood to be underwater but like in a magical kind of way and so Nagarjuna went to the Naga realm underwater and he brought back the um the scriptures and then he wrote this really incredibly brilliant commentary on them kind of condensing their meaning called the um the root the root verses on the middle way uh is one way you could translate the Mulambanyamaka Kataka 
And this is uh, one of the most impressive works in just world scholarship. I think mean, there's really very, very few things that are more sophisticated um, or trenchant. And uh, that's how I, I mean, I, I think, I, I don't think I'm alone in this. That's how I personally kind of uh, got interested in Buddhism really in a, in a deep way was um, encountering that text. And I'm sure I'm not alone in that, but I'm curious uh, how you all, what, how that, yeah, what do you all have to say in response? Well, when I was going through um, really studying the koan literature and stuff uh, really intensely, I had, uh, you know, I was doing a philosophy major at the time, and I had this, like, intense need to, for some reason, uh, put this all in a, I had to see this all systematically. I couldn't just um, rely on myself and my own perception and the most immediate, yet I had all these blockages, and I had to get some kind of systematic treatment of it uh, in order to go past that and it was in it was uh suggested that i get the fun the, what the version i read was called the fundamental verse on the middle way oh is that the, so, jay, the jay garfield translation yeah that's yeah. a really good one in my no, opinion i really I, like that one i completely disagree <laughs> whoa really <laughs> yeah he's he I mean, that's a, i don't want to get too deep in the weeds in this yet but yeah i garfield came into things from like analytic philosophy and he furthermore came into things from like a Gaelic perspective, so that colors his his translations in a way that um, I just don't. I there's I, I prefer the Sitteritz, and I forget who the other guy is, but there's a, there's a co-author with Mark Sitteritz and someone else who has a. I like that. Yeah, well, you know, better. I've I've looked at I had several versions at the time. The Garfield was the. Um... There was a the, long time uh, where he was like the only one. Yeah, I mean, depending yeah. on when you're when you're talking about, because yeah, I first encountered this stuff in like the early 2000s, and at that that's time, a, yeah, that's exactly when I was. Yeah, reading there it. was no better translation than Garfield's in a certain like, or at least no more kind of thorough and accurate. Is, is there like, were um, there was another one which I don't remember the translator if there was even a note of the translator, but it was actually somebody from the uh, one of the sub the Buddhist subreddits had there, taken it. Oh. Oh, and translated really? it. Oh, that's, yeah, that's and it funny. Was, it was a PDF with no commentary. And I oh, had that no. on my, on the, my phone. The Son of Wisdom by um, uh, Ken Bozold from Gyantso. Yes, that's, that's is, a great commentary. It's a great commentary. Uh, is a really I highly recommend that to anyone interested in this. The Son of Wisdom is is really because uh, like the Sidorets thing is very academic, uh, a little dry and kind of. I mean, it's good. It's really good. Very. I mean, it's, the the reason I like it is because it's very accurate to the Sanskrit. One of Garfield's problems is he doesn't really have Sanskrit. He, he only has Tibetan so and that plus all the other stuff it really just kind of but with but you know it was written in Sanskrit originally and um, a lot of the kind of technical aspects of the argumentation really only makes sense in Sanskrit grammar um, or at least a highly inflected language and then Tibetan isn't doesn't have these kind of like intricate little word endings that you can understand stuff so anyway i don't want to go too deep in the weeds on that stuff i just well you uh, know i found the the beauty of the of the text for me was in the uh, magarjuna basically uses reductio better than anybody else yes. i've ever seen yeah well, I mean, the, is... that stuff comes across yeah i think pretty much any yeah. you know that the the core of it for sure but i i just wouldn't I, I, I had some wrong ideas because of garfield that i had to sort of be disabused of over time so the way it worked out for me was that, you know, you read the text and then you get to the end of it and you think on it and he comes up, and this is going to be way out there uh, at this point in the conversation, but he comes up with emptiness is itself empty. Yes. Uh, and therefore what we're saying is, is that it is only merely a linguistic description of the, you know, of the experienced reality. And 
I saw this at the time as leading directly to a practice completely outside the scriptures. So like Zen people kind of look at Nagarjuna as like a, uh, I guess you would say like, I mean, he is one of the patriarchs of Zen uh, according to the transmission of the lamp. So a lot of people will look back to him and say, oh, this is the guy who systematically set up the ground that justified our, our practice outside the scriptures. When you say practice outside the scriptures, what does that mean? Uh, well, there's a, uh, let me make sure I get these right. The four statements. Give me just a second. I want to make sure I, use, I say them correctly. Anyway, uh, I can't seem to find it. I had them written down. Anyway, it's it basically a set of four statements that say uh, this is our practice outside outside the scriptures, relying on nothing but um, the mind itself, the experience itself. So anything that you cling to, any kind of description or any kind of any certain understanding or any anything that mediates, um, is not part of it. And so this is you know this comes directly from Mahakashyapa. Uh yeah sure yeah. Yeah, so he's, right. you know, that was like oh, the mean, first. Is this like uh, the don't rely on the teacher, rely on the teaching, don't rely on the, uh, the words, rely on the meaning, don't rely on the provisional meaning, rely on the definitive meaning? Is that is that what you're talking? Is there, is that something else? I know that. No, one. It's, it's something else. Oh, okay. I'll, I'll I'll pull it up here in a second. Because sure. um, that's a common refrain in the Tibetan thing. Um, yeah. So as far as as far as the the uh, emptiness, I know, we, the emptiness of emptiness is a, definitely a huge topic, and we should but we should probably talk a little bit first about um, just regular ass emptiness. Uh, so so but first, okay. Actually, yes. Yes. Um, you, so the four, yes. So the properly translated. This is what I wanted to find. This is the agreed upon good translation of this. The four statements of Zen are a special transmission outside the scriptures, not dependent on words and letters, directly pointing to the mind, seeing into one's true nature, and attaining Buddhahood. Those are the four statements. Say that. Could you say that more slowly? Yeah. A special transmission outside the scriptures, not dependent on words and letters, directly pointing to the mind, seeing into one's true nature, and attaining Buddhahood. Yeah, that sounds like, uh, it sounds like some of our stuff. Like... Like even some of the rhetoric is pretty. That's really funny. It's um, all related. Yeah, I mean clearly it's just. But yeah, but even just to how like so in in Dzogchen, I mean I shouldn't really talk too too much, but in Dzogchen the uh, there's re reference to three different types of transmission, and there's which is essentially like there's the direct mind transmission, which is like the primordial Buddha kind of just sort of manifested directly to himself in another form or whatever. And then there's a symbolic lineage, which is non-linguistic, non-conceptual, but and takes place through symbols, essentially, or that's how it's often it's re represented. So like someone has a dream of some kind of appearance. One of the most famous things is Jigme Lingpa, who is this uh, 17th century, very important figure. Um, uh, he like a an earlier figure kind of appeared to him in a dream and had really long droopy ears and and like the ears flapped back and forth and that was the transmission. Exactly, exactly like that. And uh, and then uh, but then here's then, the Dharma, Mickey. Sorry, yeah. <laughs> I didn't catch that. That was my goof, my my impersonation of Goofy. 
He said, he said, it's the normal Mickey. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. So, uh, and then there's like the, the, what is, I forget the, but basically the, I guess the teaching lineage of ordinary beings, but basically just like, you know, we have to be instructed in kind of normal ways. I mean, it's still ultimately the transition, the transmission rather happens without, um, you know, it's, it's non-linguistic, it's non-conceptual anyway, and the wisdom is the same. But uh, the method has to be kind of, you know, you, you have to have a teacher who like tells you stuff or read a book or whatever, et cetera. Anyway, so, okay, regular ass emptiness is basically the idea that whatever you call an object, let's take a chair as the usual example, there is nothing about that chair that is an immutable self-essence. There is no smallest, most essential part of the chair. It can be completely separated into its parts and there is no chairness anymore. And this leads you to a view uh, where everything is dependent for its existence on everything else. Yes. Uh... Right, and part of the, the reason that's important and not just a, a mental exercise which you know it's an easy one to get right the example of the chair it's it's hard to disagree with that but the reason it's such an important teaching is because the mind at least the human mind in this iteration that we're living in right now has for some reason this this constant need to uh invoke chairiness right you know to just to, to to view the chair as inherently a chair uh, and and all phenomena is inherently themselves um, and not as um, you know made up of their parts and then especially and I'm not ready to jump into this yet but um, especially we tend to view our own selves that way that there's some that there's some ultimate me that's here that's not made up of other parts and that this is the beginning of a whole lot of suffering so that's why the the um, the teaching is important on emptiness yeah so. Yeah, I have a lot to say. I'm trying to organize it in my mind. But the so the thing with the chair is 100% correct. But what's interesting is uh, you have the analysis of uh, I think it was typically a chariot is like kind of the classical example. It's the same thing is like, OK, and this that goes back, I believe, to the Melinda Panya, which is this like very foundational. It's kind of transitional, actually, in some ways between Mahayana, between like the older tradition and the Mahayana, the uh, because it it's like somewhat late and very sophisticated and um, provides a lot of the theoretical background. But basically the idea is, you know, you look at a chair or a chariot or whatever, and you say, okay, then this is kind of the first step is where is the chariot? Where is the chair? Is the chair in the legs? Well, if you just take the legs off of the rest of the chair, is it still a chair? No, clearly, right? Uh, is it, you know, and, 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 and is it in the assembly of the, so you have, there is no chair uh, before you put <clears throat> the parts together, but then you put the parts together and there is a chair. Uh, well, then at what point does it become a chair? And if you take, you know, one of those parts away, does it, is it no longer a chair? What if you replace one of the parts? And so the, the point of that kind of level of analysis is really that, um, yeah, I think I or you said it exactly right is that is that there's there's some thing going on in our minds where we feel the need it, it, it's not even just it's not this is the part that I think people get tripped up on often it, it's this it's the idea that like it's something you're kind of willing to do or consciously doing or 
that you like want to do or that it, it, no it, it's it's happening kind of without your knowledge or consent in a way it's just sort of automatic it may even be built into the structure of ordinary cognition is kind of an important argument but the point is that you're, you know we, we're, we're interacting with things as though um, these there were these holes uh, w-h-o-l-e these holes that um, uh, the that, that that really existed and that if we um, could interact with something that 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 means that it's real in the way that we're interacting with it but that's not that's not really true uh, and dubs dubson who's in the chat hello he makes a great comparison aristotle divides these as being by possibility for example a bunch of bricks forming a house and by functionality whether a bunch of bricks is being used as a house I, i'm less familiar with that i have a uh, uh, we actually have been reading Aristotle in my other podcast, Westward, but with the more like the political stuff, the ethics and the, and the politics. But um, I do know for Aristotle, the um, the paradox of the heap is very, very similar to this, where it's like you have a bunch of grain and, you know, it's, it's all piled up. And so that forms a heap, very clearly forms a heap. Okay, well, then you take one piece of grain. Is it still is it still a heap? Well, yeah, of course. But then you keep removing the grain pieces one by one. What's the point at which it's no longer a heap? And the problem is, of course, there is no one single point because the idea of a heap is a linguistic designation that you're making dependent upon, yeah, like what is what is the actual thing that it's doing? Is it performing the function of a heap or not? But that's not that's not like a metaphysical reality as far as you know is it really metaphysically a heap or not it's just, it's really a it's a, ultimately it's a linguistic question about how are we using it how are we conceptualizing it um but we there's no there's no thing we can point to that's like ah this is the heap the metaphysical heap and then you know it used to be that and then we take this one piece of thing off and then instantly at that moment it's no longer a heap it's it's actually <clears throat> it's actually kind of a Draw, you can actually kind of draw this into the Western philosophical tradition as well with the problem of universals. Um, it almost would seem like the chair is just a conceptual recognition rather than something that's metaphysically real. So in that sense, we could say Buddhism is almost sort of maps onto conceptualism as far as how it would relate to Western metaphysics. Another thing that's important to think about here is, and, and this is something that everything turns on you know any any kind of philosophy you do is going to ultimately turn on this because it's epistemological and you know the question at hand here is are there things that have a self-existent self-nature inherent to them and what i'm saying here is more more primal to that question is if they had or had not would you be able to tell do you have the uh, epistemological position to even gain the information to say, yes, this has a self-essence, or no, it doesn't. And my contention is that you don't, um, because essentially we're all beings of limited perception. We have no way of getting outside the process of our perception and perceiving that it's exhaustive, perceiving that it's correct. You know, I can't get outside the process of me seeing the chair and see, okay, there's me, and there's the chair, and there's the seeing, and this is all correct, and this is everything. You know, so, as long as you're, yeah, go ahead. Well, no, so that, I mean, it's a, there's a lot to chew on there, and uh, one of which, one of the things to chew on being that the uh, OG Dharmakirti would say that actually we we do have the ability through, essentially through logical analysis 
uh, you know, reasoning to, we can establish on the basis of reasoning that there are two reliable ways of knowing, reliable methods or means of knowing, which are perception and inference. And that um, the question of the, the, the inherent nature of the chair is, is, is um, yeah, that, that probably isn't something, I'd have to think about it, but I don't think that's gonna be, that's not really a question for perception. It is a question for inference, for sure. And as far as the inference is concerned, I mean, this is the thing about like Nagarjuna, to get back to Nagarjuna, um, and, and uh, I, I do want to address your point, Kagyu, at some point about the universe, because I think you're absolutely right. But the, to get back to Nagarjuna for a second, the, the point is, it, it's not about, um, it, it's a kind of transcendental argument, right? Because actually what he's saying is, one of the things he's saying is, if something had a true nature, like what what would that mean, right? Like what would it mean if the chair had the, the true nature, inherent nature of being a chair? Well, what that would mean is that it could never be something else, right? I, I mean, and I think that makes, I mean, to me, I, I, some people resist this for, for to some extent or for some reason for that I, I don't completely understand, but I think, I, I think it's kind of self-evident that, I mean, if you think about it, to say that the nature of the chair is to be a chair, if it, if it really had that nature, then it couldn't it couldn't change. I mean, then it wouldn't actually have that nature. It would have like some other kind of nature, or it have some kind of you know. And, and you can see here where we're starting to get in as well. Actually, everything's changing all the time and stuff. But does does that make sense, or do you do you not agree with that? Or or uh, I'm curious. I would say to that that, you know. You have a you have a limited amount of information you can get about the chair, and the chair has the potential for an infinite amount of properties that you cannot detect. So I I again and this this is going to come up a lot as we do this podcast, um, but it's sort of I call this the phenomenological quibble because you know everything goes back to for me as far as philosophy goes you know am I getting thorough information. And and can I, is there is there an ultimate metaphysical sureness I can have about this? And I've never found the answer to be anything but no. Um, you know, and and to me this is this is the exact spot that Nagarjuna ends up at at the end of fundamental verse on the middle way. I mean, I certainly I, there's a, I agree with, um, with most of that. My cure, my question is when you're sitting zazen, is that not certain knowledge? I mean, obviously it's okay. It's knowledge. It's not. It's not like there's knowledge in the sense of, you know, I know that it's raining right now, but to me, that would be the kind of, that's the knowledge that I'm interested in. But I, is that is that also uncertain at that point? I would say that there are basically two levels of truth. There is the um, conventional level of truth, which goes all the way from this water is cold. I can tell because I'm drinking it all the way up to um, higher order uh, logic. And then there's another type of truth, which you would call, I guess, ultimate truth and or uh yeah ultimate truth is good and that is uh being as it is where it is uh, remains unconceptualized right so there's two levels to this it's either it this is for me i mean i don't expect everyone to agree but you're either dealing essentially in some level of conventional truth that has no access to ultimate metaphysical surety or you are in a state of samadhi you're totally absorbed and there is nothing but beingness and even saying it's beingness. Yeah, is still of course. Good. I mean, at that yeah. point, language doesn't right. even apply. Right. That's yeah. that is how I look at it. 
Sure. And and this is sometimes looked at as a justification for like nihilism and stuff. But <laughs> no. again, yeah. again, this doesn't remove the regularity of appearance, the functioning of natural laws. These things you might well, not be able. Other, I mean, I guess that's why. Like to, yeah. to me, I mean, that, uh, I don't know if you're objecting so much as just providing a different perspective because, well, like, that's to me. I mean, that was one of my big take. You know, and it's something that in the Gargina you know, repeatedly emphasizes is it's not to say that the chair, um, the reason why the chair can't, you can make a chair or break apart a chair. You could throw, you know, use the chop the chair and use it as firewood is because it doesn't have an inherent nature. It's yes. if it had yes. an inherent nature, that was the, with the, the point of the, the analysis of it. If it had that, then it couldn't change. It would be frozen forever the way it is. But because it 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 doesn't have as an, a a inherent nature, it is capable of change. It is capable of of. I mean, of course, you could say, well, there's no thing that's changing. But the point is, yeah, there's okay. There's no thing that's changing, but it's the 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 components are subject to change. Yeah, no, I mean, we're we essentially agree. We're just coming at it from two different sides. We're you know, you see it like we're approaching the chair from two different directions. <laughs> The, the other thing I wanted to say, though, is, uh, and I'm, I'm also curious, I, I Aura hasn't said anything in a while, I don't know if he's uh, uh, sleeping. <laughs> but, nah, man, I'm listening to you guys. The, uh, <laughs> the, the other thing is, is, and I think this this is where, to, to return to, to Kagyu's point from before, there, it's definitely a kind of conceptualism, in, I mean, if you want to go down this road, because I think Nagarjuna isn't really interested in categorizing or going down that road. Dharmakirti definitely is, and other kind of Buddhist philosophers definitely are. Um, but, but one of the important differences with the Western tradition, at least as is sort of um, normally articulated, is um, Nagarjuna's analysis doesn't stop with chairs. And this is the big difference, as I understand it, between the Mahayana and the, and the pre-Mahayana tradition is, and this is sort of why, I, I mean, if you look at it kind of historically, Nagarjuna was writing, actually, we don't even really know when, um, but for probably a couple hundred years, at least, it didn't seem to have that much purchase because what he was saying was uh, so like in the pre-Mahayana tradition there was what's called the Abhidharma which is like all about analyzing phenomena into dharmas or like basically irreducible momentary um, well sometimes they were understood as like particles but but you got to be careful because there's like mental dharmas and physical dharmas so it, it doesn't and also like there's like blue dharmas so like there's like when you're looking at something blue from the Abhidharma perspective it's like it's made out of out of a certain number of par particles that are that are blue, um, and 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 it's really more phenomenological than ontological. Meaning, like you're not saying you're you're really just saying like, well, when you're looking at your experience, this is how it works. Um, and what Nagarjuna was saying is that even these dharmas, even these like irreducible particles or particulars or whatever you want to call them. Um, like, because from an Abhidharma perspective, you're talking about like, like you say, have like a mound of earth in your, you know, like some mud or whatever in your hand. That's like a certain number of earth particles and water particles. And those particles really have the nature. They, they're, they're substantially existent. Dravya sut, like Dravya in Sanskrit or in Pali means like substance. So they're like, it's the real substance. There is no like clump, but there are earth, like the particles of the earth that make up the clump are real and they are real as earth particles. And what Nagarjuna was saying is, no, 
actually, when you look at that Earth particle, you know, it's not really existent as an Earth particle. In fact, no particle is really existent as a particle. No particle has, even, even in looking at it at a single moment in time, as a single particle, it doesn't actually have self-nature as whatever, even in just, even at like that infinitesimal level that it doesn't work that way. Yeah, I would um, push back a little bit as as classifying the Abhidharma as this, the- I love this, because this is what I live, yeah, please go. Uh, you're right about the Abhidharma, but I would just point out that the Abhidharma is not the Dharma. It's, it, it, it may come pre-Nagarjuna, but it does not come from the time of the Buddha. Oh, so, yeah, sure, sure, sure. So um, it, 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 from a Theravada perspective, it's like watching um, two brothers arguing about which one is interpreting the father correctly as opposed to just listening to the father. Uh, does that make sense? Yeah, I, I don't, I don't, sorry, I don't mean to rag I no, no, I know, I, I know you. I know you're trying to rag it. I'm just trying to say that. Yeah, um, yeah. No, I think it's, the it's interesting. Is... It's interesting to analyze the Abhidharma about what's good about it and what's bad because I, I, I know what you're talking about. But um, I, I just notice this a lot of times with Mahayana that they'll find some of the more weird stuff from the post-Buddha days and and classify themselves as a reaction against that, which is cool and everything. But I think that modern, at least modern or contemporary or say within the last thousand years uh theravada would is is also equally skeptical of some of those things oh, I, I know there's like a lot of sophisticated stuff and i know you know um uh, yeah i mean there's all kinds of subsequent developments it's, it's interesting yeah because like the from the mahayana polemics emerged at a certain moment in time like roughly between 200 to like four or 500 um of the of the christian era and so like everything that they're saying about this kind of, you know, pre Mahayana tradition is sort of like responding to this thing that, you know, by a couple hundred years later was pretty different in a lot. Like the Visuddhimaggas from what, like the, like the 1000 or 800 or something, right? I mean, it's like quite a bit later than, than that period. Yeah. 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 So like, yeah, I mean, it's not, it's it's just, but the, it, it does, uh, and I actually personally love, I think the, the Abhidharma stuff is super cool. I, I don't have any Chinese, which is, you know, one of the main reasons why I can't really study, because so much of that material only survives in Chinese. But, um, yeah, I mean, it's, it's there's so much cool stuff. And, and um, you know, if you look at, like, Vasubandhu and Nagarjuna and, and Dharmakirti and, and all these, you know, Sangha, big names uh, in the Mahayana philosophical tradition they were steeped in it and and they were responding directly to it and they you know had a great respect for it so i yeah i i don't mean to to just kind of um yeah anyway it doesn't doesn't really matter but uh, i'm i'm yeah anyway to put this in context for people listening you can think of aura's tradition as like uh analogous to let's say like a deeply reactionary monarchism and <laughs> mahayana in this situation would be like uh fascism or or nationalism right <laughs> that is quite the uh i like that that's uh that's funny and i think in zen would probably figure in something like an arts younger type uh, type situation with the anarch or something like that <laughs> but uh, just to put that in political terms everybody can understand it and the, listening to the interaction between you two is, a, is so good and enjoyable uh cool so 
So yeah, so then so then the the key question here or one of the, or was there, was there anything that anyone I I want before we move on was there anything anyone wanted had had in their mind? Uh I just think we should talk about how this how thinking about this uh, uh doctrine of emptiness can be put into practice. Like what does that mean for the way you experience? Okay, yeah, we could do that. But why, and, why don't you why don't you start or or okay. you? Um or you want to go ahead or you want me to go? Oh, um, you can, Storm. Go ahead. Okay, so the way this went for me, I uh, was thinking about this, was that, you know, <clears throat> so there there are different kind of uh, more or less aspects or parts of your being, right? You have your body. Uh, you have what I'm going to call the ego, which is sort of the uh, – it's – it's it's the thought complex that you call yourself. It's your memories and everything else, and uh, it's it's essentially uh, made up. I mean, it corresponds to your real life for the most part, uh, but it's essentially made up. So the way this sort of like played out for me was like, all right, I'm going to try and, and perceive what this emptiness is like, and what it was. What I noticed was that I wasn't really so much the content of the the mental dialogue and thoughts that I had. I was. It, the more essential part of myself, and so far as there is such a thing, like the more fundamental part was actually my consciousness itself. You know, if you drew, if you were to remove all the content of my of my uh, egoic self, then I would just be pure consciousness. I would just be perceiving through this body as a conduit, uh, and that was a huge game changer for me. And it and as soon as I hit upon this, my practice got way deeper, much quicker, um, because I realized that you know. If you're if you're trying to force your mind to be quiet and you're batting thoughts away and sort of like putting this uh, volitional energy, um, volitional formations, putting them to war against the uh, the stream of thoughts in your head, those you know that you're just adding to the power of it. It's just it's just the same thing coming in through the back door. And these you know we learn how to speak and we learn how to conceptualize, and this sort of has like a hypnotic power over us. Um, and as long as we are kind of seduced or taken in by the hypnotic power of thought and ego um we sort of miss the fact that the more fundamental aspect of our being isn't that and so once you kind of see that and actually experience it for yourself you find that instead of being totally wrapped up in this your thoughts and the ego are sort of like something that just happened within you you know um it's like if i get cut on my arm the pain happens within my consciousness it's just sort of becomes just another thing and i noticed in zazen that it was much better for me to just simply let the mind go on with its with its talking and ignore it and this was thoughts would just fall away and you would just become quiescent so that's kind of like what i like to call like an experienced emptiness and that's sort of where it led me to that's a really good summation and uh explanation storm well thank you yeah, that, uh, before we go yeah. on, I, DK, I know you're the host. I'm not trying to take no, things no, no, over no, here. No. I, just, I, I want to hear Kagu speak. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, that's – it's kind of – I would really – it's kind of – I don't really have much to add to it, unfortunately. It's, uh, it's, this is a topic that while I can kind of say I get it broadly in terms of the metaphysics, in some ways it does make me feel a little bit grug-brained. Some of the more uh, complicated uh, – some of the implications of the metaphysics as they interact with one another. That's that's interesting. I uh, that might be the most uh, 
the the wisest thing. I know you're not. That's not what you're going for necessarily. No, but it's I, not. Part of it is, I mean, not to get too cute about things, but uh, it's interesting you say that because I think that one of the reasons for this teaching is to make us feel a little bit grug brained, you okay. know, to to make us to doubt some of the. Um, you know some of our assumptions the conceptual to... mind does not like you the you can't fix concepts with concepts and and as long as we're sort of i mean this is why you know like the famous thing from the poly canon about the you know somebody asked the buddha like well is the world eternal or not or all this stuff he's like look somebody shoots you with a poison arrow are you going to sit there wondering <laughs> who, you know who shot it and from what distance and blah blah, blah. are you going to take it out and you know it's not that he never ever addresses these things or that the tradition doesn't but at a certain level it just doesn't even really it just it's not super relevant and, and part of the problem is most of the stuff i have read on the subject of emptiness tends to be the implications of it on like the highest metaphysical yeah. level when we're talking about like the trikaya doctrine and how yeah. it the dharmakaya and i'm not sure if i'm understanding it completely correctly because I have read a lot into the Advaita the Vedanta tradition, and in some ways it seems like that, the Dharmakaya, is very similar, but subtly different, but very similar to the idea of Brahman in Vedanta, where this ultimate reality of emptiness is the, or I guess in Dzogchen it would be the ground, is the point of origination for everything that exists. Yeah, yeah you want to be, I mean... But I, I'm not really sure if I'm getting it correctly the, there. The, so the first thing I would say is like it's good to read, and it's you're definitely. I don't. I don't mean to. I don't know what I'm. I don't want to sound. What, what I'm no, trying to say. Is, what I'm trying to say is like cert, certain things only come with time. It's not even really about like it, you. You're you got to get in the habit of like I don't know how to explain. The, the more you do the kind of emptiness practice that Storm was talking about, the the more that, that those kind of doubts, if you're doing it right and you're doing it with devotion and with the right motivation, et cetera, like the, the, the I, you know, and I still deal with all that kind of stuff myself. It's just, I have noticed uh, over the whatever, oh geez, almost 15 years now that <laughs> I've been doing this stuff. Um, it, it's, um, it's more like the, the 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 underlying kind of churning, swirling, you know, mess of stuff in our psyche that is where kind of those that confusion and that doubt comes from. It it, it kind of it, it it sort of almost you know it loosens itself in a certain way. Like it doesn't even come up as much anymore. And then and then you start to get it. You start to understand that it's not something that you're gonna like understand the way that you like read heidegger or whatever and you kind of come to a certain kind of understanding of it in your mind it, it it's you come to a certain kind of understanding of it not if it make if this distinction makes sense not with your mind but mm -hmm. with your wisdom with your like inherent wisdom that's beyond like your mind in um, zen they say you you know it in your bones yeah yeah yeah, yeah. exactly yeah that's a great metaphor yeah um, so the practicality of things is what interests me personally and that's partially what drew me to my own school and um dk i think it's um you know the the famous um passages passage about the buddha you know about the being shot with an arrow and you know 
making sure you know what kind of wood it was made out of, where did the poison come from, instead of having the doctor just pull the arrow out. Um, that's It's so, so, so important. And the Buddha spoke like that all the time, not just with his um, the arrow metaphor. Um, for and, and to get into the, um, the specifics of it a little bit, for example, there's um, two discourses on emptiness in the Pali Canon. There's the great discourse on emptiness and the short discourse on emptiness. Um, and they, and even the great one is not that long. It's like, I don't know, four, three or four pages or something. The short one is like one page. And in that, and he's using the term shunyata, um, which is one of the core words meaning emptiness. He says, it, he's basically saying, here's one way you could look at emptiness. And here's another way you could look at it. And here's the third definition for emptiness. And then he he talks about um, in the actually in the lesser discourse he he says when you sit and think of emptiness this way it's going to look like this and once you get into that then you can get into then you'll find a deeper meaning for emptiness and he he talks about you know uh, emptiness as a perception of the wilderness emptiness as a perception of the earth emptiness as a perception of uh, space and everything and it's quite short and in that he's already using multiple definitions and already there's not a lot of cautioning in this one, but you can, I can hear, you know, the voice of a teacher cautioning you be like, look, it's not, you don't need to like come up with this perfect definition for it because it's going to be your experience of it is going to be shifting and changing. And the ultimate meaning of this teaching is that any definition you come up with for what is emptiness is also itself going to be empty so don't freak out about it so much right don't worry about whether you've got it uh right or wrong on this sort like you said like one reads heidegger and tries to you know figure out this perfect mental clarity of what's going on he's like that's not what we're doing here so don't get wrapped up in that don't worry so much about who shot the arrow not because there's no answer to that question, but because you're just wasting your time because it's not going to give you the answers that you're after. And that kind of stuff is really attractive to me um, because I, I spent a lot of time um, thinking about, you know, the, the ultimate meanings of all these things. And I, I still do, I'm still interested in it and I love having discussion on it, but you know, there's, I don't know, maybe some storm Zen boys would say this, you know, like there's, there's talking about the Dharma and there's practicing it. Um, and, and yeah, that's and there's a great emphasis on that in the Buddha, and he does not use terms consistently. Um, and sometimes I think people uh, ascribe that to the fact that it wasn't written down for a couple hundred years, and some monks, you know, maybe mis mi mix stuff up. I'm sure there's some of that going on, but I I actually think it's I from everything I can tell, it's it's purposeful. It's purposeful that that the meanings of these terms sometimes shifts. And he says in this context it means that, in that context it means this. Um, yeah, so I, I don't have a conclusion to that rant of mine, but that th those are things that are important to me on this topic. Um, yeah. <clears throat> sorry, go, if sorry, you sorry. want, oh, okay. Uh, or since you you mentioned that, this is a, a passage that I, I show people all the time because it's such a good little passage. And this is from uh, if anybody wants to get this book, it comes highly recommended. It's um, Master Yunmen, His Life and Teachings. And you can get it on Amazon. It's like 11 bucks for the paper copy. It's very, very good. Um, and he says, this is a quote from you men uh, addressing the monks. The old masters couldn't help it. When they saw you run about aimlessly, they said to you, supreme wisdom, Bodhi and Nirvana. They really buried you. They drove in a stake and tied you to it. Again, 
when they saw that you didn't understand, they said to you, it is not Bodhi and Nirvana. Knowing this sort of thing already shows that you're down on your luck, but to make matters worse, you're looking for comments and explanations by others. You are exterminators of Buddhism. You've been like this all along. And where has this brought you today? So that is an example of him encouraging you to just remove the arrow. In fact, all of our attachments that we have, uh, karmic involvements or whatever um, you want to say, they're all arrows. And it's much, it, it's much more uh, important primary for you to remove the arrow than understanding it. I think understanding deeply the arrows is something that can come later so you can turn around and help others take the arrows out of themselves. And uh, Urs Op says, that's the guy who wrote the uh, Union book, as far as we can tell by looking at the transmitted sources, Master Union was consistent and radical in his attack on any kind of prop. If someone relies on him as a teacher, he shrugs it off. I can do nothing but eat shit and piss. If someone relies on meditation, he criticizes them. This is all something you can learn on the meditation bench. If someone trusts in Buddha, he calls Buddha an old Indian man who is long dead. If someone relies on the Buddhist teaching, he does not hesitate to remove that prop too, saying that's nothing but dream talk. This attack on any kind of prop does not stop at any point. The master's teaching, the Chan patriarchs, the sutras, thinking, non-thinking, seeking, questioning, any kind of prop suffers the same fate. All methods, ways, or devices, i.e. anything that mediates, is swept away in order to make the most immediate reveal itself. Yeah, I mean, that sounds, I mean, I, I you know, it's funny because, of course, I see the wisdom of that and, and how profound it is. The, the, the problem, I mean, how do you communicate that, right? I mean, how do you, and then how do you, like, and then, and then it creates this other problem of like, okay, well, in the meantime, we live in a society or, or something approximating one. And we live in a society. <laughs> yeah. And so like, okay, so I still need to take out the trash, right? I mean, it's not, right. I, obviously that's not an objection and it's kind of a naive thing that people would come up with. What, what, what about, it's like, no, that's not the point here. You're kind of missing it, but it, it does. This is, I think the, the, the issue with like, like Kagyu was, was um, pointing towards is there seem there's this it's very easy i guess you could say to say that you know ultimate truth is beyond thought and language it's beyond being and non-being it's beyond emptiness or not emptiness you know even em emptiness is empty of itself but even that emptiness of emptiness is empty of itself which is you know, one way of looking at that is it's actually in a sense not empty in the in the sense that like you know it, it's it, it appears right i mean there's still appearance and appearance is empty of appearance but it's also it's still it still appears so uh, you know, and then you could you could tie yourself in knots um, with this kind of stuff, which in, in a certain sense, it's like, okay, well, you, you get yourself tied up in such a crazy knot that at some point it's like, I, I, I give up. And then that, Look, that's the moment. That, right? And that is exactly the, the Rinzai Koan study process is that since there's really nothing that can be said, you know, I, it, ultimately what the teacher does is sniff out all your little arrows anything you set up as an impediment to yourself and continuously knocks them over continuously knocks them over and if you go too far into oh it's just it's just everything's buddha and i'm i already get it and you don't actually haven't actually seen that in terms of getting satori the master will hit you with all this intense doctrine and all these uh technical explanations and stuff and then if you're someone who's extremely caught up in all that he's going to hit you with a, a buddha's a sack of shit and so you know all the methods depend on the person and where they're at and you know the master over time develops this intense ability to 
diagnose your your mental state based on watching you when you're sitting and interacting with you. So that's the the process. You know, you said you get you get all wound up. There's a saying where when you're assigned a koan to contemplate, you want to swallow it and hold it within you till it becomes like a red hot iron ball. You want that we're we're after that tension. That Koans tension are, are red pills. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, but no, that's that's the process. That's the tension that you want because those that's what brings it to a hit. Well, and there is one thing I have noticed about say this pragmatic remove the arrow view of Buddhism is that there is somewhat of a tendency for some people at least to take that I think a little bit too far into the Stephen Bachelor realm of extreme anti. Sure, but that's but that's not even like. That proceeds from faulty. So I mean, that's a kind of I don't. We could we could maybe rag on uh, so-called you know atheist Buddhist or whatever. Another. I was thing. having a discussion with one yesterday who was yeah. like, "Well, yeah, Buddhism has no idea of a transcendent or an that's ultimate whatsoever." Stupid. And that's just and he really claimed to be dumb. practicing this stuff for thirty years. And to oh be fair, God. I believe it because sometimes it is presented as a kind of rational materialism. It's not, but it's presented like that sometimes. <laughs> I mean, that's the thing is like people, th but this is just such a fun. I mean, it's, and it's really sad when it, you know, like, I know Bachelor's been in the thing for a long time, and it's just like. Like spinning your wheels for 30 years like i can't imagine like what how, i don't even know what's going on in these people's minds but yeah it that's the thing is like it you're you're you have this idea in your mind that's like well the things that i learned in my like sixth grade science textbook not even but whatever my the sort of you know what the culture tells me about my sixth grade science textbook is like the ultimate truth of reality Therefore, to whatever extent this thing that I fetishize, um, you know, seems to have some kind of all other ideas about stuff, it's wrong, but it needs to be kind of rewritten in line with my sixth grade science yep. textbook. Never mind that when you dig deeper into it, eventually every scientific worldview just breaks down to this pure yeah, problem. Yeah, I mean, that's the thing. It's like, so, well, we don't understand it. So, the, so Cole Robbie in the chat asked the question, which I think is related. He says, if Eastern metaphysics teaches that things are illusions, why is there illusion as opposed to no illusion? The, the, the point is, like, this idea of, like, an illusion or not an illusion is kind of, like, yeah, things are illusory in the sense that they're, you know, the reality of them is not what they appear. But you don't need Buddhism for that. Like what's a quark what's an electron do you see like matter is made out of quarks and electrons fermions and bosons like do you do you see fermions because i i mean in a sense you could say like well I, what i'm seeing is but i don't see fermions you know like i i see tables and chairs and that's not what what's actually there so like there's a fundamental disconnect between between what I'm seeing and what's actually there. And you don't need Buddhism for that. What you need Buddhism for is for the recognition that like, well, you know, whatever the description is, it, it, it's you're never actually gonna get like, you know, you can have a very refined analysis and very refined uh, epistemological tools and instruments and scanning electron microscopes and all this cool stuff, but but that's not gonna get you any closer, really, if you, if you think about it for 30 seconds, to what what is actually the nature of these phenomena that doesn't you know all the most sophisticated equipment in the world won't get you an answer to that and and neither will uh this this thing about like oh well you know we, you know there's no transcendent blah blah, blah. it's like no because well, you're, you're thinking about it wrong sorry go on yeah but i i understand the question differently um because western metaphysics at least the um at least the monotheistic tradition does does have an answer to that question why is there something instead of nothing it's because god decided that there would be right 
Um, whereas the, it is a it is a thorny question in Eastern metaphysics in general, whether inside Buddhism or outside. I think the Vedanta really addresses this question in very, for me, difficult to understand ways. But if in the at least sticking within Buddhism, um, if if phenomenon as they occur to us are essentially the result of karma, and karma to remind everybody, it just means action. Um, if action is what led to us perceiving things in certain ways, um, and that by unraveling karma, you can unravel illusion, which is uh, a very central teaching of Buddhism, then where did where did the karma come from? Like, where where was the first but karma? Why? Uh, what is what is the grain? Maybe maybe you can see it. What is the grain a, of sand in dog. the oyster? Sure, sure. But like, there's no but there's no beginning. That's the problem. The problem well, is that there is no beginning. The problem is we think like, oh, there has to be some origin. There has to be some. Uh, there has right, to I be. I hear you. Like, I mean, some even thing. In, it's like no. That's that's the the idea. The, the like deep need. The deep felt need to have that kind of a causal explanation is the problem. Well, it's like, you know, if, if you have this need to put it like that, you know, where did it start? Okay, well, let's let's just assume, since we're already in this mode of thought, that everything arises, persists for a while, and then passes away, right? So in order for things to arise, first arising would have had itself to arise. So, you know, where does arising come for come from for the arising of arising, right? It's, it's an unsolvable problem. And the reason it seems like an unsolvable problem with an uh, infinite regress is because that mode of thinking doesn't correspond to reality. Things are, uh, 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 everything is self-arisen, dependently originated, right? Even originated is the wrong word. Everything's dependently existent, right? I don't know, maybe that was too much, but um, yeah. So I also have an answer to Kohlrabi's question and you know, he says, in Eastern metaphysics teaches that things are illusions. Why is there an illusion as opposed to no illusion? And the, you know, if, if everything is an illusion, right, then the word illusion is kind of meaningless. There's there's no contrast to it, right? Yeah. So the way I would describe it is that yes, they're illusions, but they're real illusions. <laughs> they're not they're not illusions of illusions. It's not illusions all the way down. Um, that's the only reality the best way to describe it i mean they're they're like a mirage they're uh they don't have a self-existence it's you know there's there's no there's really no other way to say it other than you know they're and yeah, it, it's more like yeah. they're simula simulacra right would be you know simulacra is a simulation of something that doesn't exist that that's a better term in my opinion well you know i was actually thinking even in the western metaphysical tradition there is a tradition there is a certain way of thinking which does not necessarily involve a particular point of origin for existence. If you look at Parmenides, uh, being is, and it's more fundamental. And like the, even the concept of non-being is itself kind of incoherent unless you have that as a starting even, point. Even in like in on its own terms. I mean, I I thought about this a lot. Like God in a Christian and Western sense is beyond time, and in fact beyond time space creation completely so the act of creation to the whatever extent it's analyzable as an act uh could not have taken time right well, because right. like the time itself was one of the things that was created well and actually in the tom uh, the thomistic uh, theology uh god is actually seen as subsistent being itself and some of them argued more or less that the universe always existed for pretty much those reasons you just mentioned 
Yeah, I mean, you, you, you can't, at a certain point, you have to stop, you can't even think about it. it it's just, it, it's, as you say, beyond comprehension. So I, I uh, yeah, I mean, the, the, and, and it, the, the issue is like where, fundamentally, I think in terms, particularly, and to bring it back to emptiness, is the 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 problem is how do we, like the the way that we think about our um, our reality and our engagement with reality is not is not ac is not accurate, and and so the question is how do we make it m more accurate? Sorry, and our engagement with reality is not. So the the uh what am i trying to say when we're engaged in meditation like let's say on meditation on emptiness right when we're we, we constantly we have a I, I, it sounds I, I think i'm starting to get a sense of like what a koan is and, and how meditation on koans work which i really want to thank um uh storm and and the zen guys for um but when you when you, you okay you reach this kind of the, the point is it's like when your whole conceptual framework falls apart right there's some there's some um you know we, we have this like way that we think and, and and it's hard to it's basically impossible i would say to describe with language i'm not going to try to describe it with language but but it's something to do with like you know our 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 way of approaching reality our way of approaching the world you know we we see that for a second we get a glimpse maybe of oh oh shit and that that moment that rest that is the emptiness moment. It doesn't feel like anything, really. It's not like I'm seeing something. It's not like there's some in it's it's insight, but not in the sense of like, oh, I you know, I've solved this math problem. It's it's a different kind of thing. And and that is what it means in as I understand it, to to do emptiness meditation, to really do emptiness meditation. Um I, I would furthermore say uh that it, it has to do with uh, subject and object that that in that moment part of what makes it what it is is that the, the feeling of being i am me like pre-theoretically not not in the sense of like i'm having a conscious thought i am myself but this this sort of just this baseline sense of like you know i am in here and all this other stuff is out there that that that's not either maybe it's even just weakened a little bit but but that's the thing. I'm talking a lot. I don't even know if I'm Yeah, no, it's good. Um another metaphor for for that moment of of unraveling a bit of um delusion, I guess, is the the metaphor of like the whirlpool in a stream. So if there's a uh, a stream running clear and you know, clear and free down the bed of a stream uh stream bed and there's a rock in the middle of that stream and it causes a whirlpool to happen to to happen around it um that that's a metaphor for us take, taking the whirlpool as a um something inherent to the stream and we can say that whirlpool exists that that's a real thing that is there and through the process of meditation sometimes you have this um moment where you can where you essentially you you remove the rock for a moment and the water the whirlpool just disappears right and the water didn't go anywhere nothing else happened um and you don't even have to make the rock disappear you could just throw it onto the bank or something and that that moment of being of realizing that wow i took that whirlpool as a real part of myself as something inherent to who i am and, and what i am um and even though the water didn't go anywhere it's still where it was before it's it's flowing down the stream you have a very different view of of that 
part of yourself, that part of your psychology. And as you practice more and more and, and you're able to get more and more perspective, more and more power in your practice, you you start seeing all kinds of whirlpools that you didn't even notice were there. Um, and you can sort of feel these being removed one by one. Now, I mean, I know this is just a metaphor and there's a, like a million ways that it kind of breaks down around the edges, but it's, it's another way to think of it. And um, shoot, I had a, a broader point to make on this. Oh, um, yeah, I'll leave that aside. I was going to start talking about <laughs> Deleuze and Guattari, but... Um, <laughs> oh God, please do it. Please bring it up. <laughs> well... <laughs> yeah, I agree. Please go. In Ante Oedipus, which is one of their major works, um, in the first section of it, they talk quite a lot about uh, humans as desiring machines and um, this the skits and flows of, of energy. And I got very, very excited by this when I first read it and got super into it and saw an immediate connection to um, Buddhism, um, or at least to this idea of... of um, the, the desires sort of run they, they sort of run rampant and of course in buddhism we'd say even those desires aren't uh, uh are a problem that would, it needs to be investigated but if we start at a lower level just sort of admit that they exist and everything they get they get caught on to certain things and those things in Deleuze and Guattari those things become fetishized um and they become reified in way that ways that they're not actually real um and in Buddhism, it's very similar too. You know, so like, there's the, the you know the the concept of lust, for example, in at least in the Theravada, is it's that you know you think that you want the actual object of your lust, but um, but but what you really want actually is your lust, if that makes sense. Um, and if you take a different yeah, view sounds, of, I, I didn't know that you talked about it that way, but that definitely that's like the Zizek Dulu's thing, right? About like. No, you know, if you actually get what you want, that's the worst thing that could happen. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And and there's a there's a many teachings in Buddhism that I think a lot of Westerners don't like, and actually probably Easterners don't like them either, because they seem so negative. Um, but you know, one of the fundamental con contemplations, um, aside from the breath, which is like the the fundamental uh, thing that gets recommended again and again in the sutras, which is to meditate on your breath. But that's not the only thing they recommend meditating on. And so probably the second most common one is the meditation on the body. And they, they encourage, it's encouraged to like meditate on the body, like essentially being gross, you know, like disgusting. And that that's it. That's a cure for uh, lust. Sometimes if you're overcome with lust is to like, you know, think of think of girls like bowels or something or whatever you know and it, I, I almost hesitate to even talk about it because if people are curious about buddhism and they hear that they're like oh well that's a really negative way to look at life but that's yeah, well, it's kind fun. of I mean, not the point it, yeah exactly no i think it, it it's a very good antidote and uh i mean i'm going kind of off further off on a tangent but that's that's cool one, one of the kind of like from a tantric perspective it's um it's not that it's bad to do that but it's sort of inferior to being like okay but where is this lust coming from? What is it actually? Because yeah, if it's like just overpowering you, or if you're a complete neophyte, y yeah, you should you know overcome it in that kind of a way. Um, but that doesn't that doesn't solve the problem of where is it coming from? Why is it there? What is it really? Yeah, yeah. No, I agree. I agree. Yeah. Um. So yeah, I, I, it's it's um. 
No, actually, I, I think I've said my piece on that about that the the desiring machines of Deleuze and Guattari and versus Buddhism. The skandhas is is the central teaching in Buddhism that that talks about this kind of this kind of thing, and that is um, to get into doctrinal differences that we we said before that we before we started recording we we talked about maybe we wanted to talk more about doctrinal differences between various schools and maybe we're too far into this discussion now to get too yeah, deep I into think, it but I, I, uh, I think we could discuss that another another time probably I think that'd be yeah. good to like have a, maybe next episode we could do like you know this that the other you know but for the for the guys on this call I'll just I'll say that the, in Theravada the teaching on, on emptiness focuses much more on the on the emptiness of the five skandhas which for uh, which is form, sensation, discrimination, uh, mental formations, consciousness. Um, but yeah, we that that's something we can get into on another date. Did um, did we have anything that we wanted to like any kind of closing thoughts or anything like that? Hmm. I <clears throat> I'll just repeat what I said earlier, which uh, to me, what's really um important on this is the practicality of these kinds of teachings like it's really fun to discuss it and um i don't mean to denigrate the act of discussing it but uh, what i love about buddhism and what why i'm still a practicing buddhist is that for all of these teachings there's always the 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 ultimate answer to any of it is to sit down and meditate and to start trying to experience it for yourself um so that that to me that's like the ultimate teaching on, on emptiness is like it's on the cushion I'm going to give a shout out to uh, Cole Robbie in the chat for asking some really good questions and also to my boy, uh, Wilhelm, who is my internet Dharma heir. <laughs> I, I just want to say, I, I think, um, you know, this, this stuff is really tough to understand and I totally empathize with you, Kagu. Uh, you know, I, I think everyone who, um, you know, when, when you're at a certain position, it's, um, it's hard to, it's it, it just, it, you know, it takes time, as I said, and and also, um, it's it, yeah, it's kind of easy to bring in like your previous mental formations. Like it's 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 for instance, if you're talking about like the emptiness of the self and desire, it's really easy to jump in with say Arthur Schopenhauer's take on. Yeah, people are basically slaves to their will, and even if you meet all of your desires, then you're just going to be bored, and there, boom, new desire. It's it's easy to bring stuff like that in. Yeah, and, and I don't, I actually think there are, in some ways, some good analogs for for emptiness, um, particularly in some of the postmodern stuff. I know you kind of mentioned Deleuze. I, I think Derrida has some something, and Heidegger, of course, has have some things to say. Baudrillard as well. Baudrillard, yeah, mm, like yeah. There, there's definitely. Um, some good strains the 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 key point and i think i guess this is i wasn't i didn't necessarily anticipate this but maybe i should have that is, is the practice i think that was and it was great that storm really sort of jumped out with like yeah well this is all this is all and an aura too like this is all nice but the, the key point is practice and this is what practice looks like and and for that you really do need i mean it, it you can achieve a certain amount of understanding um and and with a with a with books but you really do need to connect with someone who's done it before that can keep you on track that can, you can talk about with, with your experiences and stuff um, because otherwise it's very easy to delude yourself um, and and that's 
<laughs> and at some point you will at some point without somebody to kind of keep you in track it i think it's inevitable um so so it it you really do need to have someone to to sort of you know to do the the thing about you know if you if you're getting too wrapped up and everything is emptiness which it is but you know then you need someone to be like well why don't you go read a bunch of books and then get back to me or if you're reading too many books to be like yeah chop some wood yeah exactly (laughs) exactly you know it's like uh it's like six patriarchs said throughout the ten thousand realms there is no place for dust to alight but when they slam your leg in the temple gate it hurts yeah yeah and it's not it's not that that was the the thing about the emptiness that i was trying i don't know how well i articulated but it's everything is empty doesn't mean like it, it, it it's it doesn't mean that the the pain doesn't the, you know to say the pain is empty yeah pain is empty of pain it still hurts pleasure is empty of pleasure it still feels good what we're aiming at and and this is what these practices are really fundamentally about is i mean at least as, as i understand it is you know getting to a state to a point where actually you know the pain comes meh the pleasure comes meh the meh comes meh you know it's not not in a kind of like i don't care i'm checked out way but like it, it it's there's um it, it, with the, the the metaphor that i'm familiar with is is one taste right where it all kind of has the same taste of it's empty and it's appearing it's luminous it's it's yeah like that it's in the four noble truths it's at the second and fourth noble truth which is there is an end to suffering and there is a path to it and this does the most fundamental yes. teaching of Buddhism. And this doesn't make your life like a bland, gray, unexciting nothingness. You're on a totally different level. You're actually way more uh, involved and, and vital and You present. just notice more. I mean, this is like, we call this right-wing Dharma squads, and it's kind of cute, and I, I, I like the, the kind of, you know, it's just it's funny. But it's really true. Like, I mean, to me, like, you should be noticed. Like, the whole point is you're noticing stuff more, right? Like, you're more aware you're literally more aware you're literally more awake and the more awake you get the more you can see the more you understand the mechanisms behind things the motivations behind things it just becomes uh yeah like a perfect mirror that reflects all that come before it uh just like will wilhelm says in the chat like you know it, it just doesn't nothing is opaque anymore you know, one, one time we should do an, uh, an episode on compassion because I, that's a really interesting, yes. uh, the, the tension there is, it can be very interesting for yeah, somebody who, yes. Definitely. We, I was, this occurred to me before too, and, and we kind of did a little bit in the, in the Uwira 2 episode one, but I, I definitely think um, that, that that's, I mean, it's a very, it's a broad enough topic that is worth treating in, in even more detail for sure. Yeah. I'd like to, I meet head on the sort of the tension between like just shitty quote-unquote compassion uh, that comes out of like leftist politics and and compassion how it's understood um with a radical understanding of like anatman and things like that okay well let's uh we'll discuss behind the scenes which we want to do first that or the knockdown drag out no holds barred wwe wrestlemania of traditions um (laughs) but uh i think i think that's probably is that is that good for today y'all want to i think i think that's probably a good place to yeah this was great i think i think it was a good show uh, i think this was good yes and we all finally got on at the same time yes <laughs> well, finally solving solve our technical difficulties one at a time all right well thank you so much uh i hope everyone enjoyed who um who's here and uh yeah we'll catch you next time